Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. I want to thank all of my listeners as I do every time I come on one of these podcasts because without you, there would be no Inside Personal Growth. And today, joining me from Santa Barbara is a returning guest and somebody that probably everybody knows. Jack, I think you're known by worldwide uh, by most people, is Jack Canfield. And Jack has actually reauthored a book with his co-author, Janet Schweitzer. And this is the Success Principles, the 10th new anniversary edition of this book. Jack, I'm going to let my listeners know just a tad bit about you if there's actually somebody on this call that doesn't know who you are, but I'm going to make it real quick for them as well. Jack is known as America's number one success coach. Uh, he is a best-selling author, professional speaker, trainer, and entrepreneur. He's the founder and chairman of the Canfield Training Group, which trains entrepreneurs, educators, corporate leaders, sales professionals, and motivated individuals in how to expand their vision and accelerate their achievements of their personal and professional goals. Uh, Jack has um, sold millions of copies. Actually, this book, the first edition, sold over 30 million copies around the globe. And I guarantee you that with this revised edition of the Success Principles, um, it's taking off even more. And that kind of leads me, Jack, to the first uh, question here. You know, why did you and Janet decide to kind of revisit the success principles after 10 years? And what did you really actually change in the book um, that people will get this time that maybe they didn't get last time? Well, the reason we decided to update it was there was a lot of things that as important 10 years ago as are now. For example, the last three additional chapters in the book are all about success in the digital age. And when we wrote the first book... You know, LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, Twitter, uh, crowdsourcing, crowdfunding, YouTube channels, none of that was really very, uh, you know, dominant in, the, in people's consciousness at the time. Now, if you're not Internet savvy, if you don't have if you're not social media savvy, it's very difficult to be um, successful in today's age. For example, just me doing a podcast with you 10 years ago, very few people doing that. And now, instead of going on a book tour, authors do this, and you do a podcast. And so that, if, you don't, if you miss that change, you're in deep trouble. And so there's so many ways to accelerate uh, the success and so many ways you can get caught up in, and drown in social media as well. So you have to be able to protect your brand, decide what your brand is going to be out there, what your social image is going to be. For instance, one of my friends is a corporate consultant that we're lot with entrepreneurs as well. She's also an extremely well-known in the flower arranging world, a flower arranger. She uh, wins a contest. She's become a national judge. She doesn't put anything out about that because she doesn't want to confuse the mice with her flower arranging versus her, uh, you know, uh, consulting for businesses because it seems a little soft for a lot of people. So you have to make some strong decisions of how you're going to present yourself out there, how you're going to use all of these uh, new opportunities. We have a story in the book about a young man who was going to medical school, his wife pregnant, and he decided that, you know, he didn't want her to work, but he was in medical school spending money, making money, and he didn't want to graduate with huge debt load either. So he took a weekend course on marketing, and he developed a website, and he found a product called Rapid Cup, which he started uh, marketing on the Internet. And he, you know, he graduated medical school with millions of dollars 
of of um, you know capital uh, as opposed to you know hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of debt, and that wouldn't have been possible 20 years ago. So mm-hmm. there's so many so many things you can do now that you could do then. So that's one aspect of the book. The other thing, you know, one of my friends is named Ivan Meisner. He's a person who started BNI Business Network right. International, and he uh, wrote a chapter for our book. And the first time we've ever had a chapter by somebody. Uh, on networking and how to go from visibility to credit to profitability in terms of when you go to networking events or when you're just out networking in the world. And that was around 10 years ago that anyone was paying much attention to that as well. So that's in the chapter on leadership. We believe everyone should learn how to be a leader, not just people that have positions like manager and supervisor and vice president of a company. And so we uh, developed a chapter on that. And then we updated pretty much everything, all the resources, uh, all the resources on coaching, and we also, and this is the, the most exciting part, Greg, is in the first book, almost all the principles were illustrated by stories of people who had achieved great success in life, but they were famous people, you know, people like Bill Gates, people like, uh, you know, Olympic athletes, and people that people do this. And in this book, most people, the stories now, are people who are regular, everyday folks, not famous, not, you know, weren't born rich, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything from a soldier coming back from Iraq with post-traumatic stress disorder to a young 25-year-old man who uh, built up a franchise business uh, to the point where she sold it for the largest of any franchise in that business that had ever been sold by the time she was 27, uh, to a man in prison in China whose wife basically bribed a guard to give him a copy of our book so he could read that while he was in prison, comes out two years later in three businesses and within two years is a millionaire again. So basically all the stories now are regular everyday people who read the first book, applied the principles, and become super successful. So it's much more believable now, I think, for people than it was when we wrote the first book. Well, and I think to your point that uh, obviously our world has become much more democratized and and especially the ways we can participate with technology, the internet, and everything that you're saying. I mean, I happened to just do a, uh, an interview with Stephen Kotler and Peter Diamandis on the book Bold. And, you know, you you look at the things that we're dealing with, with, you know, 3D printers and and, uh, and robotics and all the things that are happening. But the reality is, is we can all participate. And I like the fact that you've put that into this book as well. And you tell a great story, and I think this kind of sets the tone for really the basic foundational part of this, and that is... Uh, you used to work with uh, W. Clement Stone, and for a lot of my listeners, they might not know, but he owned an insurance company called Combined, and he also had uh, a magazine called Success Magazine. And Jack and I are old enough to remember this, but for a lot of our listeners, they won't. But, you know, he he talked always about this taking 100% responsibility for your life. Can you tell your little story about uh, W. Clement Stone when you were kind of in his office I was a very direct sure. guy, but also the story, the way you tell it in the book, is great. Well, I, I ended up, uh, after college and graduate school and a couple of years of teaching in the public schools, I ended up working for W. Clement Stone and his foundation, primarily running around the Midwest teaching teachers these success principles so they could use them in their classroom to teach kids to be successful. I mean, recent research, this is recent, uh, shows that only one out of ten students in high school knowing how to set a measurable goal. They'd never heard of a smart goal. So basically what Stone did hired me, I had an intake interview, and he asked me three questions. He said, first question was, 
do you take 100% responsibility for your life? And I said, um, I think so. He said, son, it's a yes or no question. I said, okay, then I have to admit I don't even know what 100% responsibility is. He said, do you ever blame anybody for anything? I said, yeah. He said, have you ever complained about anything? I said, yes. He said, then you don't take 100% responsibility. If you're a blamer, a complainer, or a whiner, then basically you're telling me that you think other people are in charge of your life and the quality of your experience. And that's not true. You are 100% responsible. You either created or are allowing or are uh, you know, promoting uh, the life that you have. And so you have to step up and say, you know, I'm 100% responsible. And that took me a couple of years to really integrate that concept that basically everything that I'm experiencing, I'm creating by the thoughts I think, by the images I hold in mind, and by the behaviors I engage in, what I say and do. And so that was hard for me. But I, I finally grokked it, and uh, what I did, it transformed my life. And all mm-hmm. students, when they finally get it, their lives totally transform. Now, do we actually, are we actually 100% responsible for everything? In other words, if a hurricane comes by, I just want news cast the other day, uh, where a plane, I think it was in Hong Kong, uh, turned on its side and clipped the back of a taxi cab as it was going into a river, uh, one of the wings, uh, on, a, on a freeway, and, and two people in the taxi cab were injured. Now, did they create that? I don't. But here's what I do know. If you act as if, if you take the position, I'm 100% responsible for my life, your life dramatically transforms. Because then, when anything bad happens, you ask yourself the question, how do I create that? Or how do I allow that to continue to happen in my life? And nine times out of ten, you'll find an answer. And when you do... Now that you realize you've created it, you can uncreate it and you can recreate it to be the way you want. Most people walk around in this, you know, victim story of their life about how bad it is and who done what to them and so. The last thing I'll say about this is he taught me a formula called E plus R equals O. Right. Event plus response equals outcome. Right. And basically, the events of your life, you then respond to them by you think, what you say, what you do, and what you visualize about it, and that's what produces the outcome. So 2 plus 2 equals 4. And if you don't like 4, you're making enough money, you're not healthy enough, your relationships aren't good enough, then you have to change what you do because the universe is doing 2. So you have to change your response to that to a 3 or a 4 in order to get a 6. That's a metaphor, of course. But basically, um, you know, when you begin to think more responsibly, when you think positively, when you begin to uh, be more in a forgiving state, when you have more gratitude, visualizing success rather than failure, uh, then life works out a lot better. Most definitely, and I'm sure that uh, W. Clement Stone had a huge impact. Obviously, that's a monumental turning point for you and for most of our listeners. And I like this statement. In each and every moment, in that moment, I'm given exactly what I need to transmute uh, that particular moment. And I think that kind of sets the frame. You know, you have an opportunity every moment of every day to choose um, your thoughts and your actions, you have a choice. And uh, the reality is you got to take responsibility. I love that part of this book. Now, the other part that I want to talk about is vision. You know, you let the reader know that they have to know what they want. And I think frequently, uh, this you, you see this, you've done this thousands of times, you've spoken before hundreds of thousands of people over your career, uh, that they don't really know what they want. And in the book, you have a vision exercise designed to help people clarify this vision. Um, and obviously there's vision boards and there's mind mapping and we'll get into some of these other things. But how important is this and how do you recommend that people who are stuck, 
There are just some people out there sometimes, Jack, that don't know how to visualize. They just can't get it in their head. They can't see it in their mind's eye. They're having a difficult time. They're slogging it around. What is it that you do to help people uplift them above that and really get this vision and along with that passion and purpose for that? Well, there's a number of things you can do. If someone says, I'm stuck, it means they're, they know they'd rather be moving, but they're not. So in order to be stuck, you have to have a sense of, I want to be somewhere else, but not there yet. So basically, you can ask people, well, what is it you would be doing if you weren't stuck? Uh, I use questions like, if you were guaranteed a million-dollar income the rest of your life, but you had to do something. You can't just sit around. Uh, but you're guaranteed a million. You can do anything you want. People start saying things like, like to teach tennis, or I'd like to be someone who takes people around the world on, on trips, or I'd like to be an explorer, or whatever. So basically, the reality is people often do know what they want. They just don't believe it's possible, so they don't even think about it or talk about it. They go in resignation, and then they kind of forget what it was they wanted in the first place. Most of us could talk out of what we wanted when we were kids. You know, Maybe you wanted to be a musician, and you're father said, look, there's been a period of family for four generations, you're going to be a doctor. Or, you know, you can't, you'll never amount to anything because you're a bad kid, or you're not smart enough, you couldn't get what wasn't attached. So we had all this conditioning that we're told as, as children, and we make decisions ourselves. Uh, you know, we have traumatic events, and then we make decisions, I'm not smart enough, uh, I don't deserve happiness, you know, I'm guilty of something. You know, I meet a lot of women who got pregnant when they were teens, and they feel like they're unworthy. And so you have this sense of, like, I'm not okay. So basically, if, uh, you know, again, I'll ask a question, like if a genie came to and gave you three wishes, what would you wish for? Well, people always have an answer for that. If you ask people, what don't you want in life? I mean, Kenny, Kenny Rogers, a great singer, uh, he was motivated by never wanting to be poor. He was really poor as a kid. Now, I think that's negative motivation, and I've talked to Kenny about that because he wrote me a letter once when he read one of my books, and we got to meet in Las Vegas out of his shows. But the point being that you can start with, well, I don't want to be poor. I don't want to be alone. I don't want to be sick when I'm old, you know, that kind of thing. The opposite of that is I want to be with other people. I want to be successful. So I want to be healthy. But the most important and powerful tool, two of them, are, well, a joy review, where you go back to your life and you say, okay, when did I experience most joy? Uh, the story in the book about a girl who was uh, a student at Ohio State University. Everyone said she should be a doctor, a, a veterinarian, because mm -hmm. she loved animals. Yeah, I remember this animals. story. What, yeah, yeah. Yeah, what, what, Julie Lately, what she found out is she hated biochemistry, she hated anatomy, she hated right. physiology. She kind of liked the outside of animals, not so much the inside. And so she was miserable in all these science classes. And one day she just sat there and it was raining outside. She decided to take the day to really decide what she wanted. And she remembered over her life, all the time she was happiest was when she was in some kind of leadership role. She was either a student council member, the president of her class, the Girl Scout leader when she was in the Girl Scouts, etc. And at Ohio State University, where she was, she would love to be a docent when they brought on you know kids from the different high schools for leadership uh, conferences. She would always volunteer to chaperone and so forth. And so she realized, I love leadership. So she went to the university and said... I'd like to change my, uh, my major to, to lead me, so we don't even have a program on leadership, which is amazing when you think about it. And she said, well, what if I put together a bunch of courses that I think a leader should take? Persuasion, communication, speech, uh, you know, speech class, uh, psychology, etc. Well, they let her do that. 
took her an additional year to graduate, but here she was. She graduated. When she was 26, Greg, she was teaching leadership classes at the, at the Pentagon to people in the military, people mm-hmm. with ranks like major and colonel. And then she went on to win the Miss um, Virginia contest. And as a result of that, she won all this money. And with that, she started a foundation to teach leadership to girls. And to this day, she runs around the country uh, doing leadership trainings for young women. So basically, if you look back over your life and say, when was I happiest? I mean, I was always happiest when I was teaching something. You know, I went to school where, when I was in military school, when I was a fre- uh, from freshman to senior, and by the time I was a senior, they gave me the worst group of kids ever because they said, you're a really good teacher, you can shape them up. I was a you know, co-captain of a football team. I was uh, you know, vice president of my fraternity in college leading them, and I started, like, I started being a high school teacher and then a teacher of teachers. And So I'm a teacher. That's what I do. That's what I love. It's what brings me joy. Well, the last thing... You've always helped people get clarity. You know, what I like about it, Jack, is not only are you a teacher, but you take people, you know, out of pain and suffering that they might be having into seeing more clarity and having more bliss and having more happiness in their life. And that's the best kind of teacher, somebody who can actually help people find that pathway um, to a more, not just abundant lifestyle, but a more abundant life spiritually Physically, mentally, you know, you do that, and uh, that's what I love about you. So, it's a it's well, a good you know, thing. Yeah, you mentioned when we started this question about this vision exercise, which is the next thing I'll talk about for just a minute. Most people, when you ask them to set goals, think they're only going to be business goals or weight loss goals, that you know, physical fitness goals. Well, you really have many areas of your life. You can divide them up any way you want. I divide them up into seven, which is up in career, financial, you know, health, and fitness relationships, uh, fun and recreation, what I call personal, which is like the things you want to own, the things you want to do, like, you know, I want a Mercedes, I want a Armani suit, I want to visit the Vatican when I'm older or whatever. And then what we call uh, contribution goals, you know, do something that contributes to the world in some way. And everybody should have goals in all of those areas. And when you do, you end up with a really balanced lifestyle. Most people are off-balance. They're, they're too much into their personal life and not enough into work, or they're too much into work and not enough into personal So if you set goals and visualize your ideal life, just sit down, you know, I tell people, get a, put on some music, give yourself an hour, take yourself through each of those areas and say, if my life was perfect, I could have anything I wanted, no holds barred, what would it look like? How many friends would I have? How many vacations would I take? How much money would I be making? How much money would I have when I retire? What would my job look like? Who would I work with? Would I work? What kind of clients would I have? Um, you know, what would I do for fun? How many possessions would I have? Would I want one house, three houses? What do I want? And then if I could contribute to the world being a place, what area of, of life? Is it scholarships for kids? Is it health for people in Africa, starting school somewhere? What do I want to do? Mm-hmm. What I found is all the students who do that, they become extremely balanced, extremely successful, and they blow themselves away with what they're able to do in all those areas. Yeah, it's uh, it's good that you say that because I think depending on where people are in their lives, it's a matter of what, what I want to say, you know, giving back. And I think one of the areas that is frequently overlooked is that, and even as I approach almost 61 years of age right now, I'm involved in a major project with a nonprofit helping them raise $20 million for kids with autism. And I get enriched by that because I see the kids every day and I get to see what's happening. And to me, it's just 
uh, it's very powerful. It's it's something. It's a force of nature that and a spiritual element that you can't always get. And that leads me to this. You know, when you go out in the world, you had a quote in your book by Paul Shaley, who I've interviewed a couple times, a co-founder of Learning Strategies, and he said that the phrase that I can't is the most powerful force of negation in the human psyche. What advice do you have? Obviously, you've heard people say this along the way, Jack, you know, I can't or I won't or, you know, whatever all those negative statements are. And it's really about negative self-talk. It's about the ego that's coming in and it's saying, hey, look, you, you can't have that car, you can't have that house, or you can't do this, or you can't do that. How do you help people replace that with positive affirmations and give them uh, more of a uh, exciting way to look at life? Well, I think Paul's right. Paul and I are good friends, and we've had many many discussions about this. He's a I great guy, that, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. he's really he's just so seated in research. Fun. But, uh, you know, the word can't, it just it just stops people. He made an important distinction. It's not so much we're saying I can't. It's there's a bit of us called our inner critic, which is saying you can't, which we then translate into I can't. And so there's a chapter in the Success Principles uh, Revised Edition about uh, turning your inner critic into an inner coach. You can actually take your critic, which is really on your side. It's trying to protect you from failure. Like it's trying to protect you from going out and making a fool of yourself or losing money or losing faith or failing in front of the community. The problem is it, it might have worked to protect you when you were a child, but it doesn't work to protect you anymore. So it's really on your side. It, it, it's just mistrained. So we have to like, first appreciate that part of us for protecting us all these years, and then we can retrain it. You can't just get rid of a part of yourself. It doesn't work. It'll come back in some nefarious way. But if you retrain it, by saying to it, you know, every time you say, I can't, you're telling me I can't do it, that's just bring down. I know you're trying to protect me, but really, I, I, want, I want you to be a cheerleader now instead of a, a critic. And there's a whole process I have in the book, and you can use EFT tapping technique along mm-hmm. to tap out these limiting beliefs and fears. But the point is, I can is, is just phenomenal. And, and the words I am, we now know that anything you say I am before, subconscious takes as a command. So I am sick, I am uh, poor, I am uh, not able to do that, whatever. We are giving a command to our subconscious mind to make that a reality. So we have to be very careful about our thoughts. Now, in my company, if anyone says I can't, they get a $2 fine right on the spot. We collect money from all of our staff. Uh, new, new hires usually lose about $100 the first couple of months. And then they stop saying that word, and they realize it's, it's costing them. We're not trying to push them but teach them that it costs you when you use that word. Mm-hmm. And so we want to replace it. The, there's a concept in psychology called the law of replacement. Because you can't get rid of a, a behavior or a thought. You have to replace it. You can't just stop saying, I can't. You have to replace it with, I can, I will, uh, you know, I, I, I commit 100% to doing this, that kind of thing. But it takes, it takes effort. I wore a rubber band on my left wrist for almost a year when I was working with this, when I worked for the Club and Stone. And every time I would say, I can't, or I'm not able to, or I'll try, I would have to snap myself uh, to just wake myself up into consciousness that that's not okay to say that. Mm-hmm. So the, the other thing is the use of affirmations. You can It's like replacing the wheat with, with flowers. Every morning, if you take five to ten minutes, and, you know, five's plenty, and just read affirmations. For every goal I have, I have an affirmation. 
you know, I'm joyfully selling a million copies of the new Success Principles book. I'm celebrating the sale of the one billionth Chicken Soup for the Soul book, left half a billion copies sold now. I'm joyfully spending 100 days on vacation with life this year. I'm happily exercising in my gym. So you're constantly affirming these positive statements. And over time, it takes about 30 days of repetition without missing one day. This is one of the reasons most self-help programs don't work. People develop a habit, but they skip days. And as soon as you skip a day, you're back to day zero. You get 30 days in a row before it logs in and becomes habitual, whether it's a thought or a behavior or, uh, you know, like calling everyone back within 24 hours of their phone calls or whatever it might be, uh, exercising, uh, meditating, uh, whatever it is, you've got to do 30 days in a row. There's some new research out of Great Britain that says when you're changing things that are really called, you need about 66 days in a row without skipping a day. So minimum 66 to be safe. And if you skip a day, you're back to day one. Well, it's it's practical, foundational advice, and that's going to lead me into this question around goals because – you know, there is a lot of research out there on people that do set goals, people that don't set goals. But you have a great quote in the book from Andrew Carnegie. And you say, if you want to be happy, set a goal that commands your thoughts, liberates your energy, and inspires your hopes. I love that. Um, one, yeah. why are goals so important? And what have you learned about the people that do set goals and the ones that don't? And then the, the add-on to that question is, are you aware of something called high, hard goals? Okay, so the first thing is what we know about people who set goals is they achieve more of what they want. Uh, there's a wonderful study that we didn't have in the first book because it wasn't done yet that we now have in the new book by a woman named Dr. Gail Matthews at Dominican University in, in California. And she took a total of 267 participants. They were aged from 23 to 22, mm-hmm. from the U.S., Europe, Australia, Asia, and she divided five groups. Group one was simply to they were just think about your goals. Don't do anything but think. Uh, groups two, three, and four were asked to write down their goals. Group three was asked to formulate a list of action commitments. Group four was to not only write down the list of action commitments, but then they were to list their goals and the action commitments and share that with a friend. So I have now an accountability partner, if you will. And group five was to do all the above and also do a weekly report to their accountability partner. Well, as you can imagine, the first group, which only thought about them, 43% of those people ever acted on their goals and achieved them. Groups two and three, uh, 56% of the people acted on them and achieved them. Group four, 64%. Group five, who did all the things we talked about, 76% achievement. So 34% increase are the other groups. And, and this is really a very important statistic because we've been teaching for years have an accountability partner, belong to a mastermind group, work with a coach, write your goals down, figure out your action steps, you know, commit to those action steps. Most people don't do that. So it's very important to, uh, to do that. Now, there is a new piece of information that I think it's really useful. Uh, Reverend Michael Beckwith, who you probably know in the movie The mm-hmm. Secret, and he teaches what he calls the four levels of spiritual development. And the first level is when you feel like you're a victim God did it to you. Why me, God? What did I do? You just feel like the world's against you. The second phase of spiritual development is when you realize there are these universal principles and you can use them. So you, he calls it the manipulator stage, where you actually manipulate the universe using these principles like the law of attraction, visualization, 
goal setting, positive thinking, all of that. The third stage he calls uh, the channel stage, where you realize if there's these laws of the universe, there must be a maker. Most people refer to that as God or source energy or universal consciousness. And so now you can say, I'm going to surrender to the universe, not my will but thy will. And here's where you might stop setting as many goals and start saying, okay, what am I to do today? You tune in to your inner guidance, which may guide you to do something. Now, once you've been guided, you can then set a goal in the outer world to achieve that. The last stage is he calls um, beingness, where you are not channeling God, you realize you are part of God, just like a drop of water is part of the ocean. So it is ocean as well as a drop of water. And so I think as people evolve, a lot of people setting as many goals and just surrender to being of service in terms of whatever they're guided to do. So it's not always a bad thing if you don't set goals, but my experience is 95% of the people who set goals are not at that level of, of beingness yet, and so they really should set goals. Now, you talked about high, hard goals. I'm not familiar with that. Tell me. Well, there's been a lot of research done um, on the uh, hacking flow, okay? And what they've found is that when there's a strong purpose behind the goal, meaning, you know, there's a lot of people that'll just set goals. You were just talking about the spiritual element and allowing intuition to kind of guide you every day. And if people were at that level of consciousness, um, they could attract into their lives um, actually what they needed, and not everybody is there. But the high heart goals are goals that basically have kind of been identified uh, as goals that have a huge, big purpose behind them. They always are usually achieved um, because that's the single most focus of that particular person. So you can actually look it up on the Internet, and I encourage you to take a look at some of um, Stephen Kotler's work around high hard goals and hacking flow. It's called the Flow Genome Project, actually. But uh, it was well, the know, first time I'd actually heard it. And I was, you know, I had never heard of a high hard goal, but uh, there's a, I'll send you a link to an article, Jack. It's really quite fascinating. Well, what's, what, what I find interesting about that, if you look at my book, this can chapter is Be Clear While You're Here. And when I run my workshops and when I coach people in our coaching program with my coaches and so forth, we always have people connect with their higher purpose before we have them set goals. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my purpose is to inspire and empower people to live their highest vision in the context of love and joy. And all of my goals flow out of that. So the Chicken Soup for the Soul book, that was a highly inspired project for me. Um, this book, which we did, The Success Principles, was my magnus opus, taking everything I'd learned over 40 years of success and putting it into a book and asking 75 other people that were super successful, from generals in the Army to CEOs of companies, etc., to say, are these the same principles you do use? So I realized to be universal. And when I started the Transpersonal Leadership, Just Leadership Council, that was a high, hard goal. We've now got 144 members around the world now setting up local groups in their countries. And, and finally, we just set a goal to train one million people to do this work by the year 2030. And that's a huge goal. And it's a goal that will benefit mankind at a very high level. I never term hard, hard high goal, but exactly I think that's what we do. And, and I would say this too, Greg. In my observation of people over the last 40 years, the people who most achieve their goals the fastest and with the least pain and effort are people that are setting what you're calling high, hard goals. They're coming from service. They're coming from wanting to make a difference, just their ego. And when they do that, I think the universe lines up much more quickly to support you. 
I would agree, and and obviously there's a whole big spiritual element that we don't we didn't talk about here. But I want to get into this because I know there's a limited amount of time left, so I'm going to blend almost three of my questions into one. So, okay. uh, some of the tools that you've used and you've advocated people to use over time have been obviously everything from goal setting to mind mapping to vision boards to all of these things. But one of the things you're attempting people to do is obviously with this, use a process to get clear about their vision um, and allow them to understand obviously their purpose in life um, and then to set goals around that that are in alignment with that. Now, what happens is, as you know, know, and you say this in the book, that people need to kind of move out of this comfort zone. And this question is around not only the use of the tools, but also, because I'm combining three questions in the one, how do you recommend that people release themselves from the shackles of fear to move out of this comfort zone and set a really big, hairy, audacious vision and goal? Well, it's a great question, and I think, you know, fear, other than I can't, fear is probably the most important thing that stops people from succeeding in life. A fear of rejection, fear of failure, fear of loss of money, income, face, all that stuff, and fear of bodily harm, fear of death, etc. So fear is self-created by imagining things that haven't happened yet. So there's really, I talk about four ways to deal with fear in the book, and I think one is the simplest way, which we'll talk about at the very end. The thing is to realize you're creating all your fears by imagining stuff that hasn't happened. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that old fantasized experience is appearing real. So change the fantasy. Start visualizing what's happening instead of bad things happening. That's simply a choice. It's a binary choice. Do I choose to visualize bad stuff or do I choose to visualize good stuff? The second thing about fear is uh, the old phrase, feel the fear and do it anyway. Uh, what Justin says, do it, do, it, do it afraid. You know, so what if you're afraid? Do it anyway. And so you, you, you can't, you used to say you can't wait for the fear to pass. See it as a caution sign, as a stop sign. But the thing that really I think today with fear, we've got this new technology called EFT or emotional freedom technique referred to tapping. And with nine acupuncture points on the head, the face, and under the arm, literally by tapping on those while you're thinking of a thing you're afraid of, you can actually disappear the fear. Uh, I've cured phobias with people in five minutes or less, people that took a train to my trip flew home. People that couldn't swim, we'd take them out to the pool at night, and within five minutes, they're no longer for water. Uh, people that are afraid of spiders or picking up spiders, you know, we test all this in the seminar. Uh, fear of heights, etc. So basically, there's no reason for anyone to be more. And I put the whole protocol for EFT in this up- updated book. Um, and, you know, that alone is the price of the book. Yeah. Obviously, you can also go on YouTube. There's all kind of videos of tapping. Well, plus you have another we book. that you, you co-authored another book with a woman. Um, pardon me, I can't remember her name, all about the EFT, right? What's the title of that yeah, book? Yeah, Pamela Bruner. Pamela Bruner's her name. We wrote right. a book called Tapping into Ultimate Success. The whole book was designed. It's funny, that book is designed to deal with any fear or validity that comes up when you read the success principles. Mm-hmm. So it really is a companion book called Tapping into Ultimate Success. That's great. Well, Jack, what you've done is not only update this book, but you've given people a tremendous resource. What I love about the way the book is laid out, like the prior book was, is that there's little short vignettes in in, uh, Jack's book here that anybody can get in touch with. 
Um, you know, there, just to kind of reiterate here, there's chapters on visioning boards, there's chapters on mind mapping, there's chapters on goal setting, there's great stories with all of these. And I want to end it with this because obviously this book is about connecting and connecting with like-minded people. And you've probably been the biggest advocate of mastermind groups of anybody out there. You know, you're saying, hey, look, let's mastermind, let's get together, because that's an important element. And I think not only just connecting on the internet, but really connecting in person to support the goals through this. What advice do you have for our listeners who are launching a new business and need mentorship And where would you advise they go and what would you advise they get involved in besides reading your book? We're highly advocating they read the book, but what else might they do? Well, I think it's critical to have a mentor. And most people are afraid to ask someone to be their mentor. They don't know who to ask. Just find anyone who's already done what you want to do in the business world or the psychology, wherever it is you're playing, and reach out. You You might have to ask five or six people before someone says, yes, who cares? Uh, it only takes one yes to have it work. And only, when you ask a mentor to mentor you, just ask him for 10 minutes a month. Would you be willing to let me ask you questions for 10 minutes a month? That is such an innocuous request, almost everyone will say yes. What then happens after a few meetings, they start to say, well, do you have any more questions? And they start giving you more time. Then they might invite you to have lunch with them. Then they might invite you to shadow them for a day or hang out in their office for a couple of days and just watch how they run their business. So. The idea is, you know, start small with the request so it's easy for them to say yes. And once your foot's in the work, then it will expand. Always do what your mentor tells you. You know, at least experiment, try it on. If it doesn't fit, don't do it continually. But, you know, if I'm giving someone advice, I don't want to waste my time if they're not going to use it. So thank them for what they did. Tell them how you used it. Tell them the results that occurred. So they start feeling like what they're doing matters. Most people want to mentor you. Mastermind groups are a group of six you know, five, six, seven, eight people, mostly five to six, uh, who get on the phone or meet in person uh, once every two weeks is what we recommend uh, for an hour to two hours. And they each, each person 10 to 20 minutes, depending how long the meeting is, to talk about a project, an obstacle, where they're stuck, something they want to do. And then the rest of the group brainstorms, comes up with solutions, uh, gives them advice, introduces them to people, etc. And you'd be surprised that will accelerate your success more than anything. I always say that meditation and mastermind groups, the two M's, M&M, are the two secrets to my success. I've always, I've been in the mastermind group, you know, different ones over the years, but for almost 40 years in a row. And uh, amazing what occurs from just profound. I'll tell you a quick story we have in the book. There's a young man named Kabir Khan who I met when I was in Malaya. He actually sat in the hotel lobby for six hours waiting for me to come out of the elevator so he could accost me and try to get to me. I ended up having lunch with him that day and I mentored him. Uh, and he ended up creating a mastermind group in Malaysia in Kuala Lumpur. And he asked one of the richest guys in Malaysia if he would be part of his event. It's a 24-year-old kid asking this guy who's pretty much a billionaire if he would be in a mastermind group with him. And the guy said, what's a mastermind group? So he told him, he said, that sounds like a great idea. Why don't you go out and find one more young person? I'll go find three more really you know, successful older people. And uh, this idea of sharing and storming, that's really good. So he gets in the mastermind group with this guy. Uh, this guy first said, young Kabir wants to be a magician. So he pays for him to come to America and study with these magicians in Las Vegas. 
Kabir goes back a year and a half later, becomes a top magician in, in Asia, mm-hmm. and then this guy who was the billionaire is building a Revolve restaurant on top of the tallest building, uh, I think it's the uh, Petronas building, big oil company building, in Malaysia. And uh, one of the James Bond movies was filmed there, people jumping on it. And he asked Kabir to be his partner. So now Kabir, who's about 26 or 27, is now a partner in this multi-million dollar restaurant. Never would have happened if he hadn't asked this guy to be in a mastermind group with him. So masterminds are really a profound opportunity to up the game to a very high level. We always want to start with people who are playing just a little bit higher than you. Right. You know, Bill Gates is probably going to say yes, neither is Warren Buffett. But someone in town who's maybe making twice as much or doing twice as much will say yes. Well, it's a great opportunity. And with that being said, and I appreciate you bringing that up because you have opportunities for people to not only teach this. Now, where my listeners can go to get um, more information is obviously www.thesuccessprinciples.com. But Jack is offering with this book um, this 10-day transformational program that has quite a value, 10 lessons, two and a half hours of audio and video content. And all you have to do put after that is slash uh, 10 days. And he's also got, for those of you who want to lead what I would call the mastermind group around the book, um, is a free instructor's manual. Um, I actually downloaded it last night. It's at www.successprinciples.com forward slash guide. And this is a six-lesson instructor manual guide that you will get um, absolutely at no cost to you. Um, Jack's providing this because really, you know, when you look at a thought leader like Jack, who we've just been talking with, he's really trying to help people transform their lives. And this book becomes... Hi, best way to say it. It's your it's your guidebook. Um, I encourage anyone to go pick up this 10th anniversary edition. Um, not only read the book, but get engaged with others. Um, you know, as Jack had just said, the two M's, meditation. For those of you who aren't meditating, try it. Go for three to five minutes the first time. Get involved in a mastermind group. Use your visioning boards. Use your mind mapping um, uh, systems that you have, whether they're electronic or you're just doing mind mapping on a big piece of paper. Um, whatever you do, kind of jumpstart, but use this book as a guide to jumpstart. There's so much in here. And as Jack said, the success in the digital age, the whole part six of this book is an excellent opportunity for you guys to learn how to make connections. Um, that was part of why they redid it. Jack. It's been a pleasure having you on Inside Personal Growth and spending time with your years and years of wisdom and parting some of that uh, on our listeners. Well, thank you very much. Let me say one last thing, Greg. It's, it's all the things you said that were uh, free resources. You can go to the thesuccessprinciples.com. Uh, but if, when they buy the book, instead of going directly to Amazon, go to the thesuccessprinciplesbook.com. And when you buy it, you'll still buy it through Amazon, but you go there, and what will happen is you'll get five free downloads of the first two chapters of the book, so you can start reading it before uh, you get the actual book in the mail, a daily disciplines of success poster, an instant income business planner from my partner, Janice Schweitzer, uh, a video and an audio, both an hour long on goal setting and all the questions that we normally get asked. So the successprinciplesbook.com. And then you can get the guides you talked about and all the other free resources at thesuccessprinciples.com. And thank you for this opportunity to uh, share all this with your little bit. 
Oh, well, we appreciate it so much. It's an opportunity, obviously, um, that what you just articulated, all of those additional things that are bundled is a, is a huge opportunity for our listeners. Um, I didn't even know about those two. you said it. So we'll put a link, I'll just let my listeners know, there will be a link to that particular um, uh, URL that Jack is talking about so that you can get all those additional things. Thanks, Jack. My pleasure, Greg. Thanks for having me. Take care, buddy.